Good morning and welcome to Break the Bias, a podcast mini-series hosted by So Perth. We've tapped into this year's International Women's Day theme and we're taking the opportunity to speak to some amazing Perth women. I'm Jessica Cook and this is Karma Levine and today we are talking to Tanya Ciccone. Tanya is the Executive Officer at CEOs for Gender Equity where she's worked to successfully shift the conversation in WA from fixing women to fixing workplaces. She's currently bringing her game-changing proposition and strategy to ensure that all CEOs assume responsibility and accountability for creating an inclusive and gender-diverse culture, which is incredible. So welcome, Tanya. Thank you so much for being here. And tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Thank you, Jess. Um, Look, I'm delighted to be here uh, as part of the conversation, and it's such an important conversation to have. So uh, six years ago, I was invited to apply for the role of executive officer at CEOs for Gender Equity. At that time, it was 12 CEOs who were convened by the Equal Opportunity Commissioner, a fabulous woman called Yvonne Henderson. And she decided that Perth organisations could do better. She was fielding sexual harassment complaints from women in male-dominated businesses. So the 12 men, Uh, she tapped on the shoulder were CEOs of big businesses here in Western Australia. And they were the ones that she wanted to engage because she believed, just not too dissimilar to what Elizabeth Broderick did when she convened male champions of change, she knew that for these women to be safer in organisations, that in fact it had to start at the top. Mm. So that's why she engaged these CEOs. So pretty much I started six years ago at uh, International Women's Day in, in 2016. And from that time I spent, probably when I first started, I thought I didn't know anything about this space. I didn't subscribe to being a feminist. I'd worked in female-dominated environments. Uh, so I didn't understand the landscape. But once I began to do my environmental scan, understand the lay of the land, The first thing I landed on was the research. Women were underrepresented in huge numbers, despite the fact we represent 50% of the population. We um, have been graduating in higher numbers from university and high school over the last 30 years. We've been joining the workforce in huge numbers again over the last 30 years, Uh, yet those numbers weren't being represented in equal ways to reflect, if you like, those big shifts. Also what I discovered that every single gender equity event that I went to in Perth was about women telling women what to do to get ahead, to break the glass ceiling, or worse, old men telling women what to do. So I could see there was an opportunity in uh, engaging leaders from the top and having that conversation. Mm, So definitely, so your own kind of experiences, is that what inspired you to take on this sort of role? Jess, I can't say it's my own experience. I learned of so many other women's experience. Mm. I had always enjoyed, I was a senior executive in the public sector at a very young age. I was reporting to the CEO at a relatively young age. Uh, so I thought, well, I've made it. What's, what's, what's <laughs> the story? Uh, so it wasn't my experience. I'd had a great experience. What I had learned, though, that I had a lot of women reporting to me. And at the time, I thought, because they had needs as mothers beyond just working for me, I remember one day receiving an application from a woman, a young mum, 
she'd been newly separated and she put in an application for time off in lieu. And I thought, why am I signing this? She said, because that's what the previous director used to do. And I'd say, no, no, I, I meant, why are you bringing it to me? And she said, because this is what we do. I said, I'm not interested. I know you already work 40 hours for me in four days. You're not to bring any time off in lieu applications. So that sent me on on the pathway then to appreciate that um, I could generate a framework or a culture that was about uh, recognising and valuing outcomes. I gave my teams their own budgets, their own targets. And I completely unleashed them. But that, that relied on a high level of trust. And by trusting them, then we had an accountability framework that was about saying how you get from A to B is entirely up to you. I'm not going to watch over you and have my eyeballs on you in terms of how you do that. All I'm interested in is in the outcome. But all I do care about is that it's done safely and ethically. So that was the experience I brought. I didn't bring anything hostile to the table. But hearing other women's stories toiling away in male-dominated environments absolutely reminded me that culture starts at the top and that absolutely has the largest impact on a woman's trajectory in the workforce. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I guess that brings us into what does um, CEOs for Gender Equity do and, and what do you yourself do there specifically? Okay, so um, I've got to say I don't do much. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So after that first six months, I thought, Jesus, where do I go? Where do I start? And and just in terms of the context, there was a lot of events. There was a lot of um, initiatives. There was a lot of conversations about how do we fix women as if it was women's fault that women weren't at the top. I didn't accept that because out of all the women I met and got by going to those events, that's when I learned how fabulous, well, I didn't need any convincing that women were fabulous already. But the stories that I was hearing was really alarming, linked back to the data. I could see that there was an opportunity for the environment to shift rather than for women to shift. So when I talk about the environment, I think about the workplace. So that's the scene. So all I did was I thought when I met with my CEOs, my initial founding members and other CEOs beyond that, there's a couple of things I learned. Every time I caught up with someone like Richard Goiter, uh, from West Farmers, um, Rob DeLuca from Bankwest, Barry Felstead from Crown, um, you know, Chris Sutherland from Programmed. Firstly, people around me said, there's no way you're going to get to see those people. Well, I did. <laughs> I only took up 30 minutes of their time and it was pretty easy to get them to talk about themselves and their business. I mean, they were always in the paper. For, for I mean, we're a one-paper town. So it wasn't hard to find a story that was really, really um, um, relevant to them. So that was the easy part, getting them immersed in terms of their day-to-day business. And they knew why I was there and I knew why they were there to speak to me. But I'd always say, so tell me, why gender equity? And they all lent in, all 12 of them individually, lent in and said because it was the right thing to do. And I wasn't convinced that... The right thing to do was, in fact, the right compelling enough reason to bring along your executive team, much less the rest of your business, in terms of shifting the conversation in WA. So all I set about doing is understanding what their why was. I knew they didn't have one. 
which mm. is no disrespect or criticism. I knew that there was an opportunity to better articulate their why, why it started with them, why it needed to start from the top, not with their VP or their 2IC or head of HR. I also knew there was an opportunity for them to articulate a business case, a robust business case for gender equity that was beyond the right thing to do. Let's completely accept it's the right thing to do. Yep. I just didn't believe six years ago it was a compelling enough rationale to bring others on board. And the third thing I wanted the CEOs to do is I wanted them to share their commitment to gender equity with people who weren't on the journey. I wanted it to share their commitment to gender equity with their CEO peers who are in their supply chains, people over whom they had a degree of influence, people who wanted to be in front of that CEO. Every event I went to, the converted were in the room. So I wanted the non-converted in the room and I knew they weren't going to come and listen to me speak, but I knew they'd come and listen to a Richard Goiter or to a Rob DeLuca or a Barry Felstead. So that's all I do. So they say they pay me $10,000 to join, but they do all the work. Mm. And is that why it's important to start with with that, with the top, as you as you said, is because they can then use their influence over over the people that they have influence over and it, it amplifies your message. Absolutely. And it's not my message, Kami. It's their <laughs> message. Yeah. It's their message. So each message is really unique. And the challenge for me from a content perspective was I've got all these CEOs. They've all got fabulous stories to tell. How can I elicit them and generate a new conversation in WA? Because if you look at... Um, and there's no criticism around this, but there's a lot of saturation of this. So the stories are the same. We've got a flexible working policy. Well, guess what? A policy is a policy is a policy. Mm -hmm. So there's a slight variation in terms of intent, slight variation in terms of you know time, time off, but at the end of the day, I wanted to create something unique and I had all these wonderful CEOs there. So yeah, absolutely, it's critical. It starts from the top. They had the messages and, and, and part of what was asked of them was to share that with their peers. Absolutely. And so when you investigated their actual why, what did you find? Uh, well, let's reframe it. I didn't investigate anything. So for me, all I knew is I had just come out of parenting leave. I had had a baby on my own uh, at that time. Um, uh, you know, due to a separation when I was pregnant. I had uh, been out of the workforce. I deliberately wanted to raise her, you know, spend some time, you know, raising her by myself um, without putting her straight into daycare. And my last stint before I did this work, I did a couple of odd jobs because I absolutely had lost my confidence. I thought, who's going to want to employ a single mother with a little baby? So I had literally had come out of an Aboriginal corporation as its interim CEO, uh, as a fabulous yeah, working opportunity. And that's when I got my confidence back. I thought, oh God, I've still got it. Anyway, the point is though, I was a nobody. I didn't know any of these people. I'd come from education, I'd come from the public sector. I was licking my wounds after you know having this baby on my own with this ex after an ex-husband. I'd worked in this um, really difficult environment, uh, but very rewarding and rich environment with, um, with an Aboriginal corporation. No one knew me. So I didn't do any investigation. And one doesn't go around telling CEOs what to do. All I do is elicit. 
yep. elicit, elicit, elicit. So I just asked the questions. Yep. And then, but what did you find? Well, I found that by asking the right questions, I got the right answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely got the right answers. So what I found is that they had to dig deep themselves to, to answer those questions. And to give you an example, I was working with um, um, Nigel Hearn, head of Chevron, managing director of Chevron Australia. Nigel came to me after he'd already done his commitment statement um, and what I tended to find is that some CEOs were really nervous about it because they thought, oh, my God, I haven't had to answer these questions before. So they relished the opportunity. So Nigel had done that, so he enjoyed that piece. When it came to doing the uh, the CEO conversation, which is our second commitment around the business case, I do it on um, via video. And he rang me and he said, Tanya, I can't do it. I said, what do you mean you can't do it? He said, well, I've gone to the business and I've asked them all the questions in preparation for the questions you've asked me and I don't like the answers. So what do you mean you don't like the answers? He said, well, I've just realised we've invested for 10 years in gender equity and I still don't have any women reporting to me. Mm. So what are you going to do, Nigel? He said, I'm going to completely rewrite the strategy and I'm going to make it outcomes-based. Yeah, it really is great that, like, you can come to them, but they they kind of figure the solution themselves, if, if that makes sense. It's good to hear that, you know, um, they can recognise that problem with your help and then they they can kind of say, okay, well, this is how we move forward. I think that's important. Absolutely. And they've got all the answers. They're very, very clever people. Yeah. They've got yeah. the answers. The strategies are in place. All the initiatives are in place, but typically they're fragmented and they don't deliver outcomes. So just getting them to turn their mind to it, which they were very happy to do, uh, was a a strategy that obviously that I had generated. So I'm most proud of that. But again, I say Mm. they do the work, I don't. Yeah, yeah. And so what systemic barriers do you often see that will uh, hinder gender equity in the workplace? So that's a really good question. So I suppose the systemic issues are, if we start right back to many of these organisations were built by men for men. So that's understandable. So that's a big systemic issue in in itself. And again, it's not a criticism. Women have only been joining the workforce in huge numbers over in, in the last 30 years. At the same time, societal expectations have outstripped, I think, workplace expectations in terms of how women uh, ought to be able to access those senior roles. So in terms of the systemic issues, so it's about recruit, how we recruit. If we typically recruit, we look for you know certain criteria that says that, okay, we've got a pool of, um, say, a long list of, um, say, 100 applications, uh, and you look at the application list, uh, I was speaking to one managing partner of a stockbroking firm. He didn't know how many applicants of those 100 were female. He rang me back to say only one was, and it was for a business analyst role. And that's on a traditionally male-dominated sphere. It's open to women. So you've got to look at that systemic issue to say there's something wrong if women aren't interested. There are plenty of women doing finance. There are plenty of women doing accounting. Women in accounting have outstripped you know, men doing accounting, again, for the last 30 years at a ratio of 60-40. So you've got to look at that system to say, well, what have we done here to create just only men being attracted to the role? So it's how the job ad is written. It's the criteria. It's all those things that typically favour uh, um, 50% of the population excluding women. So that's one systemic issue. 
around the recruitment process. Then, of course, it's the uh, training process. It's how people are onboarded. Uh, you know, what's the messaging around that says that uh, this is an environment that welcomes women? How do we talk about, you know, the policies that are available to women and also support men who also want to have a role in parenting? So it's how we recruit, it's how we onboard, it's how we train. McKinsey will tell us that women are left behind from the first rung of the management opportunity. It's men that are given that first opportunity well before she's articulated any intention or desire to have babies or to start her own family. So it's that promotion system, uh, an early promotion system, and of course it's the um, uh, senior leadership uh, opportunities and how they're created. Out of all the CEOs I've met, of which there are 100, I'll always ask them, how did you get to the top? And guaranteed, each one of them has always said he was tapped on the shoulder. Does that mean that he didn't go through a meritorious process? Absolutely not. Of course he did. Does that mean that he wasn't well equipped? Of course he was. The thing is though, we only talk about merit when we talk about recruiting women. Mm. Merit is used at a much higher level when we talk about recruiting women. So I say to a lot of leaders, let's find ways to recruit women. It doesn't necessarily have to be just um, uh, by always applying merit in such a strict way, we're allowed to sponsor women as well. And by sponsorship, that's how we also tap women on the shoulder to include them at, at the top. Whew. Women don't get tapped on the shoulder. Oh, as yeah. much. As I feel much. a little bit sick. Yeah. As much. <laughs> mm. yeah. I, I have a bit of a, a weird question, but. I've listened to a lot, like I've listened to people talk before on how males, generalising here, males find it easier to ask for a promotion or to put themselves forward um, and kind of, uh, I guess, boast about themselves, whereas women, um, generalising again, tend to um, find it harder to you know, know their worth and know that they're worth more. Do you, do you see that happen? I just wanted to gauge your opinion on that. Look, that's a really good question. And um, I wouldn't even consider that weird at all. But so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's part of um, what I call, you know, the, the supply and the talent issue. Yes, well, the supply and the demand issue. So when we talk about talent, absolutely, we know that men typically like to overstate uh, their abilities and women tend to underestimate their ability, okay? And so traditionally, we like to say, well, that's based on confidence. I was once at a mining conference and someone in the audience basically asked what you said. And I remember uh, the CEO of uh, the RAC. He had his senior leaders do a, a 360. All the men overestimated their, were, were confident in their ability and the women underestimated. And he went back to the women and said, do you know your peers rate you completely much higher than what you did. And so he said, Tanya, I think we need a program to boost women's confidence. I said, imagine if you were all equipped to manage men's overconfidence. <laughs> so a lot of the interventions are about fixing women. Now there's something about women's humility that ought to be welcomed and recognised as a real, um, as a contribution that's required around discussions. So yes, that absolutely exists. So instead of fixing women or fixing men or blaming men, what about fixing the environment where we welcome your humility 
if there's a spectrum of you know masculine to feminine yeah most women could be at this end but it doesn't matter where we are but imagine if that whole spectrum was welcome where that humility was welcome and where we don't value overconfidence as a worthy criteria which is what we've traditionally done Mm. yeah that that's a yeah I mean that's an amazing way to look at it because yeah it's and I've heard conversations around it before you know like men will go for that promotion whereas women won't and I don't think that should necessarily be seen as a weakness on on a woman's behalf but it's interesting to look at well why like why will a woman you know show more humility and why is a man overconfident say Mm. yeah and why should that business though rate his overconfidence as a competency exactly no and this is so we're making I'm making some assumptions that she the one the that that she is capable and she's equally competent so how do we tap her on the shoulder to say, do you know what? We'd like you, you know, to, to apply for this role as well. Oh, I can't do it. Well, let's manage that. Let's talk about that. Absolutely. So then when we're, as a recruiter or as a team leader, how do we ensure that we're getting 50-50 in the applications rather than just yielding or, or, or just accepting his only applications because of their level of confidence without, you know, saying to her, I think you should apply for this because I know you've got the skills. And so how do you work with CEOs to create this sort of environment? Well, it's having those conversations. It's, it's them, them leading from the top. Each leader has every opportunity, whether it's convening a working group, an action group, or convening a new team. I had one CEO who was one of my founding members. He didn't have any women reporting to him. And it was only until he was privy to these conversations that we facilitated a CEO round table through the CEO conversation I do around the business case through the CEO commitment statement that he said, I realised I could make a difference. I said, well, how did you do that? And he said, well, I went to my HR team when there was some movement at the ELT level. I said to HR, okay, we've got two vacancies. I want to make sure that uh, we have women on the long list and women on the short list. Well, he was surprised by the level of backlash that he encountered from the, from his team in HR. They said, "Hello, there's no way we're going to use um, mer- um, we're going to use targets. We're going to use merit to recruit." And he was a bit shocked. He said, "I'm just telling you, I want women on the long list and I want women on the short list, and I'm going to recruit a woman." This is not in the absence of merit. So he finally went through the process, but he had to bring them on. So that's part of his role, to bring on HR. Just because their HR uh, is in charge of the people function, it doesn't mean that they don't need support in also developing their own business case for this and being a part of it. So that's part of you know, the CEO's role to do that, to equip them to, um, well, to have these difficult conversations. Uh, number one. Number two, it's about um, when he did appoint, he was so uh, pleasantly surprised by the, um, the difference in the conversation. And I'd say, so Chris, tell me the difference it made. He couldn't articulate it in words. I said, Chris, just give me a couple of words. <laughs> Wide-eyed, he said, Tanya, it was less of this thumping his chest. Mm. I said, so what do you mean? He said, the... <laughs> Great way to describe. Yeah. <laughs> uh. And he said the level of the conversation was different, the different perspectives. He said it was much more high level, less emotional. He said it completely changed the dynamic. 
Less emotional. Less emotional. <laughs> Interesting. Fancy that. Mm, Fancy okay. That. A woman with less emotional. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm. So, yeah. so that's how. So that changed. You know that that sent a big message from the top. Hey, this is how it can be done, mm. and this is the impact it can have on the whole business. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. As long as it's done well. Do you know what? It's not a token. Well, do you know what? Yeah, we say number one's, you know, one woman's a token, two's a minority, three, three you're getting somewhere. But this is also part of it. We, It's hard, it's easy to be critical, but we need to start somewhere. We need to absolutely start somewhere. And that was a really good place for him to start. Yep. And it worked. But do you know what? He learned a lot from that whole process. And we're all allowed to make mistakes. And this is also what I say. None of us has nailed this yet. Mm. So we need compassion. You know, we need that. So the best CEOs I see are the ones who've got a ton of humility, who say, look, I'm really, yeah, I don't know where to start. Well, this is a place to start. Yeah. And we need to show compassion to say it's a new strategy. We're not going to get it right all the time. But how do we remain open to learning and being really iterative to, to test and adjust and keep moving forward? Mm, yeah. And um, so... Our series obviously called Break the Bias, which was the International Women's Day theme this year. And um, quite clearly, you're very, you know, familiar with that sort of world. So what does Break the Bias mean to you? And are there particular women who have inspired you on your journey to where you are today? Yeah, look, I'm loath to speak about myself. <laughs> and um, certainly, look, I'm really lucky in as much, if I talk about CEOs for gender equity, there were some fabulous women who were part of that group initially. And I wrote a piece just initially, just, just a little while ago, um, talking about those women. Because Perth, for all intents and purposes, um, was cited as being a real boys club by the fabulous research done by Committee for Perth, Filling the Pool. And that took a lot of bravery uh, for Committee for Perth to undertake that research, number one. And then similarly, the women who were part of the founding group, uh, that also took a great deal of bravery to step up and say, yes, well, we're going to back this. And that was also supported by the men in the group. That also took a great deal of bravery. Many of the CEOs said, it's not safe to put your head up, up above the parapet to talk about these issues. So we created a safe way to make this happen because other people needed to hear the conversation. So yes, there's a lot of women that have inspired me and I'm really lucky to be now transitioning into new work from CEOs for Gender Equity into a space where I'm inspired by a lot of women like Elizabeth Broderick. So I'm moving from CEOs for Gender Equity to Champions of Change. And that work led by Elizabeth is so inspirational because it's all about addressing the systemic bias. Mm. Yeah. So I find that work incredibly powerful because that work is a lot more nuanced. It's a lot more behind the scenes. It's about how you build trust, understanding the the, the um, organisation and how it operates to to innovate and disrupt ways to generate new ways of thinking. So I find her and the, the peers in that environment, yes, yeah, super super um, inspiring. Um, and then back in CEOs for Gender Equity, it's the Deidre Wilmots, it's the Gail McGowans, it's the Christina Matthews, it's the uh, Sue Murphys, 
it's all those women who certainly worked very hard to be the first, but none of them wanted to be the first per se. No, I don't think anybody wants to take on that um, that mantle. They're just, it's you, you kind of feel like you have to. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, no one wants to be the first, but hopefully someone will be the last. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So in terms of breaking the bias, I always, um, oh, I've got a lot of antipathy to um, days like that. And what I mean by that is because um, it's really important, of course, to celebrate the achievements of women. Uh, when I talk about hashtag break the bias, I always love to insert break the systemic bias because we are all, all riddled with bias, which I found very early on. I had my own bias. So how do we become more aware of it? Um, and I'm loath to break people's bias because I don't want to criticise anyone for having a bias. So how do we look at how we recruit? How do we look at how we promote? How do we look at how we sponsor? How do we look at how we remunerate? That's where the bias is that locks women out. Yeah, and it seems like you look at it in a rather in a positive way rather than a negative way, which I think is quite important for people to do. Yeah, at the risk of sounding Pollyanna, yes, I am half glass full rather yeah. than half glass empty. But Absolutely. that's the best way to be, really, isn't it? When when looking at huge problems like this, that you know they require someone to look at it like that. I think, and it's not just. You know, we can't just um, say, cut everyone down for what they believe because that's that's what it's always been. So it's interesting to look at it from like that sort of perspective of positivity and not judging someone for having that bias. Absolutely, yeah. because we, they need to be in the tent. We need to have the conversation with them to understand where they're coming from. Yeah, and I don't think we should be punishing people for 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 their for, for what they bring to the table. Mm. And bearing in mind they've got you know it's how they they were raised, how they were parented. You know, there's generations of that how they were schooled. We can't unravel all of that. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot behind it. You can't just say, you can't just change someone's beliefs like it no. straight away. It's it's a long process, but it's yeah like the work you do that is working towards that goal, which is great, yeah. Absolutely, so you can't always see the benefits immediately, but it is a longer it is a longer game, mm. um, for want of a better word, uh, but um, I feel it's uh, incredibly rewarding and enriching. Having said that, I've coached a lot of women. Yeah. I've coached a lot of women and supported them uh, behind the scenes. Uh, when organisations come to me to say, uh, we're looking for a woman, I will refer you know, women to them. A lot of those women don't even know that I've referred them into into organisations or roles. I don't feel I need to, you know, tell people that. So I'm an absolute believer and committed to individual interventions, absolutely. I've coached a lot of girlfriends mm. and women who've come to see me around things, absolutely. So I provide that support. But also I get them to recognise what they can control, what they can't control and what they can influence. Yeah. I wanted to go on to, I read a piece that you wrote the other day um, about the WA gender pay gap, how it's one of the worst in Australia. Why do you think this is? Okay, so the gender pay gap is such a misnomer and it's been, um, I suppose, incorrectly bandied about for such a long time and we've really shone a light on this. So the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, releases average weekly ordinary earnings twice per year in May and September. That data is traditionally uh, used by WGIA to talk about the gender pay gap. 
Now, a lot of organisations who work in this space have done this whole discussion a disservice. We like to think that pay gap talks about that women and men are paid differentially, that there's inequity in how women are paid less than, than what men are paid. The gender pay gap actually measures on average what men are paid versus what women are paid. It does not measure like for like. It does not include part-time. Mm. It looks at the average weekly ordinary earnings of organisations across Australia. In Western Australia, the ABS samples 400 to 500 companies. And what they look at <clears throat> within those organisations is on average what he is paid, what she is paid. So how that is actually calculated, if you bear with me, mm. is that all of he, all of the men's average, sorry, all of the men's salaries are added up and divided by the number of men in that business. All of her salaries are added up and divided by the number of women in that business. So if you take a business like aged care that's predominantly women and 10% men, on average, his salary is going to be much higher than hers mm. Mm. because he is found in senior management roles. He is not found at the front line. Yep. All of her roles, she's quarantined mostly for front line operational roles, which are paid less. Mm. So on average, the aged care sector, even though it's dominated by women, has a pay gap that favours men. Right. So the mining sector has a smaller pay gap than aged care. So even though there's 12 to 18% women in mining, she is also found in senior roles mm -hmm. and in higher paying roles. She's not quarantined to low-level paying roles because on gen in, in general, they're all, you know, well-paying, well okay? But they don't have uh, women quarantined just for admin administration roles. See, make no mistake, women are overrepresented in administration, they're underrepresented in operational roles. But on average, uh, his salary, there's a smaller gap between what he's being paid versus what she's being paid. Mm. Yeah, I actually didn't realise that was how it... I mean, you hear like about pay gap, but I've never actually known how it is calculated, which is quite interesting to, to learn, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. A couple of years ago, I convened all the women's groups, women in mining, women in resources, women in IT, women in whatever. None of them knew. Yeah. So my call to action to them, because I always have a call to action in every discussion I have, was to go back and so they recruit individual women, always ask them, does your organisation do a gender pay gap audit? Mm. Until recently, I knew that I was the only organisation asking organisations to do a gender pay gap audit. And I'll give them the ABS methodology. Uh, Widgea has its own methodology. If, if they're an organisation with over 100 people, um, they're, uh, they're obliged to do a gender pay gap. Uh, so there's that methodology as well. So we're not short of tools or frameworks mm. to use. But I can guarantee you, every time one of those organisations has done a gender pay gap audit, they'll ring me and say, guess what? I know what? We've got a big gender pay gap. I know. Mm. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> one wag said to me, oh, if we remove our executive leadership team, we don't have a gender pay gap. I go, well, funny that. Yeah. Because it was dominated by men. 
I thought, well, that's the point. Mm. But that's the learning. <laughs> yeah. But why would you want to do an audit and then audit the results? Yeah. <laughs> well, but that's the beauty of it, that once you do it, the data doesn't lie, and then you can begin to manipulate it to get the story you want. But mm. the, for me, that was a positive outcome because that's the point. So how do we fix the gender pay gap? We appoint more women to senior and high-paying roles. Yeah. We appoint more men to front-facing operational roles in female-dominated environments. Yeah, and it really goes back to what we were talking about before, like men are tapped on the shoulder, women aren't. It all kind of <laughs> ties in together. Yeah. And so what, what can be done to kind of... So are you essentially saying that a lot of businesses don't do this gender pay gap audit? Well, so whilst we've got the highest in Western Australia, yeah, absolutely. So we've got the lowest uptake of gender pay gap audits in Australia as well. Mm. So let's make it easy for businesses to do this gender pay gap audit. Absolutely. Uh, so we saw a, um, we've had a 100% jump since we've been operating in this space of the number of organisations do a gender pay gap audit for the first time. It's stalled. Mm. So you imagine there, there's about 380 organisations that report to the Workplace Gender Equality Agency in Western Australia. That's what we benchmark our results to. So WA, we lag. As a collective of members, we outperform the Australian measures and the Western Australian measures. Mm. So we know we're doing something right. So if you've got, again, 300, 380 organisations in WA, we're 70. So we represent the most mature, if you like, or the most progressive in Western Australia. The challenge is how do we get the rest on board? Mm. The big question, yeah. Yeah, how do we get the rest on board? <laughs> is, it, is it because the framework for them to do it is too hard or, is it, or do you think it's because they don't want to do it? It's a combination. It's a really good question. It's a combination, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely, it's a combination. Um, it's... Uh, Look, I know that um, the recent gender pay gap audit through WGIA has been simplified, but nevertheless, a lot of organisations still see it as an impost. You know, personally, I'd love to see how the ABS methodology was adopted instead, and then we can you know, benchmark like for like in terms of the methodology, just look at an overarching ordinary pay of men, look at the ordinary pay of women, and divide it by the number of each, and then you've got your plain averages in black and white. Maths. Yeah, simple maths. <laughs> simple simple maths. maths. Yeah, if I can do it. Yeah, it, like my year eleven math teacher said, if Jamie can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> yeah, I had the same experience at school. Yeah, <laughs> I think my, my I, teacher I was not strong said in maths. No. <laughs> yeah. But the funny thing is, you know, you know, once the maths is applied, it all makes sense. Yeah, yeah. you know, and it's really not that hard it's too. Not yeah. That hard. yeah, yeah, it's not that hard. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Now, so um, we've really enjoyed hearing from you today. This has been an incredible conversation. We've really enjoyed all of the conversations we've had so far with um, this podcast, but um, wow. So <laughs> thank you so much for coming in and, and speaking with us today. Now, if people want to follow your journey and follow the organisations that you work with or get in touch with you, how can they do that? Okay, well, we've got a website. So at www.cosbegenderequity.com.au. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. I will follow you. (laughs) I still have a Twitter. (laughs) I do too. I just don't use it. During COVID, I've I've not engaged in Twitter just as much. 
Um, having said that, I am finishing up very soon at CEOs with Gender Equity. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a wonderful interim uh, executive officer joining me and uh, uh, people can you know, reach out to her when, she, um, when that appointment's finalised. Fabulous. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Um, like Karma said, this has been incredible and just, you know, hearing you talk is amazing. So, Well, ladies, yeah. just quickly, I never have a conversation without eliciting a commitment. Based <laughs> on what I've heard today, what would be perhaps a commitment that you can take forward that'll make the workplace a better place for other women? <sighs> I mean, for us personally in our own workplace, I feel like we are quite lucky. I feel like we... We have a very, given a small workplace, however, it's a very inclusive workplace. But I think for me, what really stood out is is looking at people who have biases and not not judging that bias and kind of looking at, at it from the perspective that you said. So thinking, you know, this is ingrained from however many years of this sort of belief. Um, I shouldn't look at it as, you know, they they as anything against me, I should look at this as, well, you know, I, I shouldn't be fighting the system as such. I should understand it and, you know, understand it better and I can move forward and get to where I need to be without worrying about what other people have, you know, that's how they that's how they think. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, for me, like, what really stood out was that perspective, that kind of more positive perspective on biases and that they're not the enemy as such it's it's just something to work with yeah yeah fantastic um and I guess you know Jess touched on this we're a really small workplace there's four of us we're 50 50 male female um so so we are really lucky um that we have that representation we have a really open uh, dialogue about these type of issues in our in our workplace. Um, So I don't think I need to commit anything to us specifically, but as a a fairly senior um, marketing person, I I do like to make sure that I'm bringing people through, um, especially women. Um, And so that kind of mentoring um, aspect of it is is something that I take quite seriously and, and really enjoy doing. And the other thing that we can do and is we started this podcast to talk to, well, it was supposed to be a mini-series, to mm. talk to the women that we profiled in our International Women's Day article. And the feedback has been so amazing and we've enjoyed doing it so much that we really wanted to keep the conversation going um, because obviously International Women's Day is great. And hopefully, you know, we can stop having them at some stage because we don't need them anymore. So keeping these conversations going and keeping this podcast going with people who have a story to tell, women who have a story to tell and to potentially inspire other women is something else that we are going to do as well. So so it won't just be limited to the International Women's Day and the, you know, preceding weeks and and following weeks it's going to be something that we're going to do ongoing to have these kind of massive and fascinating conversations with as many women as possible fantastic yeah and we learn a lot and I think just the fact that we you know it speaks of our workplace the fact that we can come with this and we we want to keep going with this like we're so fortunate that we can come forward with this sort of opportunity and hopefully like inspire other women out there to keep the conversation going in their workplaces and so forth. And other men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yes, we can't do it without the men. Yes, we need, we need them. Yeah, stop fixing women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, thanks, ladies. Uh, thank Fabulous. you so much, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you.